Good morning. God bless you guys. Well, a couple of weeks ago, as you remember, I began a new series. It's a series I'm calling Grace, the Undiluted Gospel. And through the first message, I made my ambitions for this series known, that I wanted to make it so simple to put together in our hearts, it would be just as easy as a two-piece jigsaw puzzle. My heart's deepest desire is to present grace, the undiluted gospel in its purest and its plainest form. No additives, no antibiotics, no preservatives, no pesticides, no growth hormones. These are the very substances or mixture of substances, you know, that farmers spray onto our crops and they inject these things into our animals to kill bugs and to kill parasites. And when we consume toxic crops and contaminated meat, we become sicker, not healthier. How many of you have heard you are what you eat, right? It's true. We don't want to eat sick meals, right? Because they make us sick. Not in terms of our salvation, but in just terms of life. When Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly, he's talking about Zoe. He's talking about the God kind of life. It's the life that we have here. It's the life that we walk in now. It's not talking about just abundant life in heaven someday. No, we live here. This is the God kind of life. And I really believe, I do with all my heart, that I'm living that Zoe kind of life. Doesn't mean everything in my life always runs smoothly, always runs perfectly, but I'm living that Zoe kind of life because it's a life that's undisturbed in a sense. It has God's peace settled in, saturated in my soul. And so we are what we eat. Unknowingly, shepherds have done the same thing, though. They have fed their parishioners off of a menu that has been contaminated with Old Covenant and New Covenant. Now, friends, I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. I was there at one time, too. I have a heart for shepherds. I have a heart for pastors and teachers. I have a heart for evangelists. But unfortunately, even the stuff that I would have been feeding people in the day was not the best food to feed them, to be honest with you. But God has a way. He has a way of redeeming everything. Most of the churches are no doubt filled across the nation and well-meaning ministers. When I say that, I mean, they poured out their heart in prayer. They've said, Father, what is it that you want me to say? And they stand behind pulpits and lecterns, and in my case, a music stand. And they continually inject the old covenant law into grace, the undiluted gospel. They believe that the Old Covenant is somehow their scaffolding, if you will, that helps us to reach new heights and to grow in our spiritual walk, not realizing that it's the Holy Spirit and it's this gospel of grace that teaches us all things. Friends, would you like to know what happens when believers are inoculated with the Old Covenant law? Let's just ask that question, okay? Would you like to know what is it that happens to the believer? Does it change anything to do with their salvation? No, the salvation is a finished work, but something happens. Something happens when believers are inoculated with the old covenant law. The message that they receive actually becomes a repellent to our future generations. I have noticed that the young people are not in the church like they were when we were kids. And I don't know if that's just because the parents stopped taking them or if they just got tired of hearing the message, do more, be more, obey more. And it was just constantly like that and literally did not feed on the diet, did not feed off the menu of grace, the undiluted gospel. 
And as a result, when they've grown up, they've just walked away from it going, I can't live up to that standard. So why even try? And so the churches are missing a very integral part of Christianity, and that's the young people coming up. But I have great confidence that this gospel of grace is really beginning to take root. It's growing deep, deep roots. And it's coming from all four corners of the earth, not just here in America, but I see it in other countries taking effect as well. And so when we have the wrong message, a message that beats you up, a message that says try harder, a message that says do more, be more, it becomes a repellent on our future generations. And one does not become healthier or more immune by preaching about sin, by preaching about the law. Believe it or not, I know this is going to sound crazy, but they become sicker in their souls. They become sicker even in their bodies. We are a three-part being, our souls, our bodies, our spirits. It's all connected. And so as a man thinks, the scripture says, so is he. So if he thinks about dire strait all the time, he thinks about dark things all the time, he will live that out in his body. His body will eventually catch up with it. And it's true because it starts here. And because our spirit is so pure, because our spirit is so undiluted, because our spirit is so full of God's grace, why not allow all of that goodness to seep out into your soul so that your soul becomes healthy, your soul becomes vibrant, and then it flourishes down into our bodies, and we are just healthy and whole just all around. Does that make sense? I don't want to just wait for heaven someday for that. The emotional parasites, and that's what they are. It's emotional parasites. When we think about things like guilt and shame and fear and condemnation, you know what those are? They're emotional parasites, and they cannot be prevented with a syringe. They cannot be preserved with a pesticide. They cannot be pacified with an antibiotic. They cannot be placated with an additive. And these parasites cannot be persuaded to leave by the blood of bulls and goats, friends. It took the precious blood of the once for all Lamb of God to make us pure, to make us perfect, to make us preserved. Amen? So today I want to minister for a few minutes through a message I'm calling Beneficiaries of His Loving Kindness. What I want us to see through the message is this. We are not justified by the law or any portion of the law. You've got to get that out of your bag, friends. Don't take it with you. Justified, again, means declared innocent. It means to be declared right in God's eyes. We are not declared innocent. We are not justified by the law or any portion of the law. We are justified, just as the scriptures say, by grace through faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision. We are no longer under the schoolmaster of the law. For all who were baptized in Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. Come on. We are dead to the law. The scriptures tell us that Christ is the end of the law. That means there must have been a law in place until Christ, right? The last one in the line is at the end of the line, right? And so that means something's in front of the one. I don't know how you can be in the beginning of the line and the end of the line at the same time unless you're the only person standing there, right? And then I wouldn't call that a line. I just call that a spot, okay? <laughs> Come on. Does it make sense? But it says Christ is the end of the law. Now, this is a tough one for people because they want to keep going, but no buts, no ifs, no ends. Christ is the end of the law. 
Do you get it? The law was in front of him. And with every beat of the clock, Christ was marching towards. He was coming to earth. And that he would die on a rugged cross and he would say, it is finished. I am the end of the law. He is the end of the law. We are dead to the law. Christ is the end of the law. We do nothing to earn such grace. Our pitiful scaffolding of good works in an attempt to attain, maintain, or retain our salvation is contempt in view of the cross. Contempt in light of the cross. When you feel like you've got to attain it. In other words, do something so marvelous that you've earned this salvation. No, nobody earns this salvation. That you could somehow maintain it. Friends, do you know how many people are in maintenance mode today? They are working their little fingers to the bone because they're in maintenance mode of trying to be good not realizing that it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to the ungodly things of life. It's not the law. The law is just there to point out your failures, not to tell you, good old boy, when you obey it. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you could obey the next one million things, next one million choices you came up with, the law would not be over there saying amen to you. The law would not be over there cheering you on. But imagine on the million and one thing you decided to color outside the line just for a little bit. The law would have its bony fingers in your face going, you failed. That was the purpose of the law, friends. So we do nothing to earn this grace. And as we reach out by faith and receive this grace, you know what? Guess what happens? We become the beneficiaries of his loving kindness by doing what? Reaching out by faith. That's it. Are you kidding me? Suddenly I became a beneficiary? That's right. You are a beneficiary. The testator has died. He has written you in his last will and testament. And he said, there's one way to become a beneficiary of this loving kindness. It's by grace, <laughs> through faith, amen? In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, we find these words. The Apostle Paul writes, stand fast. Now see, those are words you don't hear very often. When's the last time you told somebody, hey, just stand fast? You don't say those words, do you? The Apostle Paul was using language they were very familiar with, idioms they were very familiar with in those days. And he said, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Did you do anything to make yourself free? No, Christ made us free. He said, I want you to stand fast in the liberty in which Christ has made us free. And then he says, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. That's strong, strong language. Who's he writing to? The Galatian church. When he said, I want you to stand fast, it literally means to remain stationary. That's standing fast. It's kind of like at attention. He said, I want you to pay attention here. I want you to stand fast. I want you to hold fast. 
You see, because when you don't stand fast, you know what happens? We are tossed about by every wave and every little wind of doctrine that comes along because somebody else was clapping for the preacher, because somebody else was amen in the preacher. That must mean it's okay. Friends, listen, if it doesn't line up with new covenant, you're coloring outside of your coloring book that he gave you, okay? And then he says these words, he says, do not be entangled. Again, I don't know about you, but I don't even like the sounds of those words, do you? I don't like when anything gets tangled up, do you? You go fishing one time, get yourself a bait casting reel. If you've never been fishing, you don't even know what I'm talking about. But it's one of these reels that you better learn how to use. That's not a standard reel because you throw that out in there and if the lure is not heavy enough or you're throwing into the wind, what happens is you've got more movement on the reel than the line is taken out. So you know what you end up with? It's called a bird nest. Your line just goes poof. It looks like a bird nest. And I've done that a few times until I learned how to master one of these reels, right? And so I don't like things tangled up. You didn't like it when your little girl's hair got tangled up. You didn't like that, did you? Because she was screaming and you were frustrated pulling out hair. We don't like things tangled. So when we see these words from the Apostle Paul, and he says, don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, the fact that Paul is admonishing the Galatians not to be entangled again with a yoke of bondage tells us that they had come from a background of what? <laughs> Being entangled, right? How do you know that? Because he said, don't do it again. When you tell little Johnny, when you tell little Susie, don't do that again, what are you saying? I saw you do that before. It didn't work the first time. Don't do it again, <laughs> right? So the apostle Paul, very familiar with the Galatians, very familiar with society, and he's just saying, don't do that again. Don't get entangled again. So he's very familiar that they come from a background that had them all tangled, entangled up, and therefore the Apostle Paul, he is trying his best. He loves the Galatians. He loves the church. He loves Christ. He loves the mission that God has called him to. And he's saying, don't do that anymore. He's doing his best to prevent the Galatians from being led down the primrose path by the Judaizers. How many of you have heard that term before, the primrose path? You ever heard that term? Come on, primrose path? Yeah, you know you've heard that term. You know, it's a primrose path because it promises one thing, but in the end, it ends in disappointment. That's a primrose path. And the Apostle Paul was basically saying, they're going to come along and they're going to tell you something that up front is going to look awesome. I'm going to tell you something. It's going to take you down a primrose path, and in the end, it is nothing but disappointment. Your emotions will let you know when you get there. It'll be disappointment. So he's trying to keep them from the Judaizers' message. And through this scripture, the Apostle Paul is essentially telling us, not only them, but us, that the believer's liberty, the liberty by which Christ made us free, could be entangled again, and it would lead to wearing the yoke of bondage. Now, I know you've got a question here, don't you? I didn't say you could lose your salvation, friends, but we know Christians that are in messes, don't we? Come on, <laughs> come on. That's because they got entangled, that's all. So let's ask the question, okay? What are the means by which a believer can put on the yoke of bondage again? Now, come on, I think that's a good question, reasonable. He's writing to the Galatian church. He's writing to believers. They believe as much as you and I do. 
The Holy Spirit's already been poured out when he's writing this, friends. The Holy Spirit's not on its way. Holy Spirit's already here. He's already told him, look, you got entangled again. So what are the means by which the believer can put on the yoke of bondage again? Well, he tells us in that scripture. He says it comes by not standing fast in the truths that the Apostle Paul had written just before this verse. See, you don't have enough context here. You don't have the context here. If this is the way the letter opened, it just said, stand fast, he'd be like, what are you talking about? It's the verses just before this one. There's four verses as chapter four rounds out. Let's look at them. Galatians chapter four, verses 28 through 31. He says, now we brethren, he's talking to the church, as Isaac was, are children of promise. I think that is the first thing that we've got to get down in our heart. Look, you are children of promise. No matter what you're going through, no matter how heavy that yoke feels, I'm telling you, you're a child of promise. So he says, as Isaac was, we are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, what does that mean? That means you used your own scaffolding. You tried to climb up another way. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Now look at these words. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So let's ask a couple of questions here. Who are the bondwoman and the son? Because it sounds like I need to stay away from them. Who are they? That the apostle Paul would so masterfully construct his allegory around. Who are these people? They are none other than Hagar and Ishmael. You say, Pastor Mark, was there a problem with Hagar? <laughs> was there a problem with Ishmael? Did they do something wrong? No. They did nothing wrong. And the law did nothing wrong either. That's important. The law is good. It is holy. It is righteous. It is perfect, converting the soul. The problem is that law and grace cannot live under the same tent. There's a fight. There's a feud. They can't live under the same tent. Therefore, Paul instructed the Galatians to get rid of the bondwoman. So he's reaching all the way back into Genesis, right? With Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. He's reaching all the way back into something they're very familiar with. And he says, you got to get rid of the bondwoman and her son. They didn't do anything wrong. They were totally innocent, totally pure. But they cannot dwell under the same tent. The Apostle Paul instructed the Galatian church to get rid of the bondwoman and her son. And so it is, and so it was, with Sarah and Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael. They could not dwell under the same tent. And so it is with the law and grace under the same tent. It's the quickest way to family feud. You want to go on family feud sometime? Come on. It's the quickest way to get there. Just bring law under the same tent one time. 
Hagar and Ishmael's liberties and their freedoms and their inheritances were disrupted. Listen to me carefully. Because Abraham and Sarah decided to build their own scaffolding when it came to making a family. Unfortunately, Abraham's scaffolding led to the very womb of Hagar. Ishmael was conceived, but he was not the son that God had foretold would become Abraham's inheritance by promise. He wasn't the one. You work to make this one happen. This is not by grace. It's by flesh. Instead, Abraham and Sarah, their flesh grew impatient and they got entangled in a much bigger web than they wanted to be in. You could call it the first shake and bake, and I helped, right? <laughs> it's what it was, friends. That's all it was. It's the same thing that happens to believers even to this day. They're waiting on a promise. They grow impatient. And what do they do in their impatience? They sprinkle miracle grow on God's promises. They're saying, God, you don't move fast enough. Some things are worth waiting for, friends. You don't want wine on the second day. It's not wine, it's still grape juice. So they sprinkled miracle grow on God's promises and they used their own mixtures to repel wasted days and lonely nights, never realizing that they had fallen from grace to grind and from faith to flesh. And because Abraham and Sarah did not stand fast, See, that's what Paul was saying when he said, stand fast. And because they did not stand fast on God's promises, they found themselves entangled in a yoke of bondage. Sarah was persecuted by Hagar, as you know. And I believe it broke Abraham's heart when he had to send away his firstborn son. That was not easy for him. This is his firstborn! Came from Sarah's handmaiden but it's still my flesh. I hope you feel the same way about your kids. And it broke Abraham's heart that to send away his son. And he had to send him out into the wilderness. Let me ask you a question. And this is where the heart of the gospel is found, really. Did all of Abraham and Sarah's shenanigans, come on, did their shenanigans annul the promises that God had made to them. No. The promised child, Isaac, was still born. He still came, and God made Abraham the father of all nations. It did not change God's blueprint, God's plan for Abraham's life. Let me ask you another question. Are our destinies... And are our promises forfeited when we operate by the law or when we operate by flesh? Now, you might want to pause and think about that question for a second. Are our destinies, are our promises forfeited? No. You want to know why? Because God is a promise keeper. He's a promise keeper. And guess what that makes us? Promise reapers. Come on. Promise keeper, promise reaper. So it didn't change God, but when we erect our own scaffolding, we slip back under the yoke of bondage 
We put the yoke back over our necks. And guess what? We will live frustrated lives, lives that keep us busy making bug juice to spray on our vexations of guilt and shame and fear and condemnation. Under the law, we live lives that serve as a repellent to future generations. And as a result, many will never embrace the truth that through the cross, through Christ's cross, They've already been made the beneficiaries of his loving kindness. Quit chasing your tail. You've already arrived. You've been made beneficiaries of his loving kindness. I would encourage us to do exactly what the Apostle Paul subscribed for the Galatians when he said, Hagar and Sarah represent two covenants. He said that earlier in the fourth chapter of Galatians. He said, these two women represent two covenants, one by the slave woman who bears children after the flesh. And he says, this is Hagar, the slave woman, the bond woman, the one who bears children after the flesh. He said, that's the slave woman. That's the woman with the yoke. He said, but there's another woman. There's another woman. And she bears children according to the promise. That's Sarah. She bears children according to the promise. Friends, think about this one time. The tree that releases the acorn falls on the ground. And then the wind blows for a few days and it covers the acorn with dirt. And then the rain comes and it rains on that dirt and that acorn. And then it germinates after many days. Let me ask you a question. How much provision did the seed supply? Come on, all the provision falling from the tree. The tree released the acorn. The acorn didn't release the tree. The wind came and blew. The rains came and fell. And it germinated the seed. The seed did not build its own scaffolding nor fertilize its own growth. Friends, Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, he said, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies it remains a single seed. But if it dies, if it dies, it produces many seeds. That's what you are. That's what I am. One of his seeds. Why? Because the seed fell into the ground. When Jesus spoke these words, he was speaking of his death. He was speaking of his burial. He was speaking of his resurrection. It was the death of the seed and the burial of the seed, and the resurrection of the seed that placed us in the new covenant. If you strip one of those three things away, you have no new covenant. You've got to have a death. You've got to bury that body. But then it's got to be raised in resurrection life. So if the first two steps would have taken place, anybody can do that. Anybody can die. Anybody can be buried. But God would raise his son in resurrection power and resurrection life. It's awesome. The covenant that bears children of promise, the promise by which we have become the beneficiaries of his loving kindness. We are the richest beneficiaries in the world. The body of Christ is so rich, they don't even know it. Beneficiaries, friends, you've got to look beyond greenbacks and you've got to look to Jesus' back, which was scourged at the whipping post and see what kind of price he paid. Most people didn't live beyond the whipping post. 
They lashed you horribly there. Your entrails were pulled out of you. They would play games like this. The Roman soldiers would take your intestines and walk 20, 30 feet out into the way. And they would say, if you can walk to me and still be standing when you get here, we won't crucify you. But no man could do that. Friends, the law, listen, the law is the yoke of bondage. And when I quit seeing people in bondage and quit making that connection, that's why I'll quit preaching about this. But I deal with this all the time and it hurts my heart to see my friends and my family, even strangers, suffer unneedlessly. The law is the yoke of bondage. Believers are not justified by the law. We are justified, how? By grace through faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. The schoolmaster is in the unemployment line. Friends, we are no longer under the supervision for all who were baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. We are dead to the law and Christ is in the law. Therefore, when we look to Christ alone, Christ alone, the yoke is made easy and the burden becomes light. The first time the word yoke is found in the New Testament, it comes from the lips of Jesus himself. He said it. The Apostle Paul just told us that if we didn't stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, then it would be easy to be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So what did Jesus have to say about it? See, Jesus understood that reality better than anyone. He knew that we were not made. Our constitution is not made to carry heavy burdens. I'm talking about emotional burdens now. We're not made for that. He knew that believers were not designed to eat from contaminated menus of law and grace. Friends, that's what the two trees were about in the garden. I wish he would have said it like this. Adam, you see this tree right here? It's contaminated. Don't eat from it. This tree right here, no pesticides. All organic, full of life. And I don't care how God would have explained it, it still would have happened, friend. It was bound to happen. If it wouldn't happen to Adam and Eve, it would happen to their kids. Because man just gets too curious, especially when you put him under a law. And so Jesus knew that believers were not designed they were not made to eat from contaminated menus, the contaminated menu of law and grace. He knew that under the law, we become repellents, but under grace, you know what? We become attractants. There's nothing as beautiful as graciousness and love, especially when someone doesn't deserve it. And yet you're gracious, you're loving, you're kind, you're gentle with them. There's nothing so beautiful. You know what they call that? They call that grace, friends. You're giving somebody something that they don't deserve. Grace. And so we are an attractant. As long as we don't open up our mouth and start putting the law, the condemnation, spewing condemnation on them. And friends, remember I said you are what you eat. So if you're feeding constantly upon this new covenant of grace, this new covenant of unconditional love, then when you open your mouth, that's what's going to come out. I guarantee you, look, I don't want you to prove it to me, but I, if you pull out your knife right now, come up here and cut my wrist, I'm going to tell you something right now. Blue blood will not come out of this vein. Come on. I look down at my arteries and I go, no, those look blue. 
That looks blue. Oh, you say when it hits the oxygen, then it turns red. That's not true, friends. I was so curious about that one time I asked a nurse. I said, I got a crazy question for you as she's doing stuff with me. I said, I got a crazy question for you. Is blood always red? And she went, what? Because some people say it's blue. See, that looks blue. She just laughed. She said, it's always red. She said it just brightens up a little bit when it hits the oxygen, but it's always red. And so as we feed upon this diet of his goodness and his heart and his blessings and this new covenant of grace, guess what comes out of us when we're cut? (laughs) The same things. Grace. Grace comes out. This is why Jesus would compel us to come unto him so that he could give us a yoke of rest so that his sweet fragrance of grace would serve as an attractant when it hits you, friends. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, we find these words. Look at what Jesus said here. Come on, you're very familiar with these. He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. I know that's a different version up there. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And guess what? As many translations as you want to look at, that last line right there, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, remains the same. What else are you going to say about that? That is the essence of that scripture right there. He wants us to know that my yoke is easy and my burden is light but you got to come to me. In other words, he's saying, are you tired of building your own scaffolding? I've got a word for you. Come to me. Are you worn out from spraying bug juice on all of your guilt and shame and fear and condemnation? I've got a word for you. Come to me. Are you burned out with your jigsaw puzzle life? Come to me. Are you tired of trying to make your own seed grow? Are you weary from being under the supervision of the law? Come to me. Do the additives, preservatives, pesticides, antibiotics, and growth hormones that you've been spraying on all of your stuff, all of your plants, does it still end in crop failure? (laughs) Then I got a word for you. Come to me. Come to me. Friends, I don't know if you've noticed or not here, but I just showed us what it's like to live under the law or trying to be justified by the law rather than by grace through faith. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is the end of the law. That's why he would say, come to me. Come to me. When Peter was sitting in the boat on that stormy night when the waves were like this and Jesus came walking on the sea. Peter said, Lord, is that you? Now, this would have been a great time to say, yeah, it's me. Well, I'm having fun out here. Isn't it great? No, it's not the shallow end, Peter. It's deep here. No. Then Peter said, man, if that is you, Lord, bid me to come to you. Tell me it's okay, Lord, because I know you've never told a lie. I know that your promises are always true. I know that I can trust you. 
So if you tell me to come, I'm going to come. And Jesus just looked at him and said, come. Wow. Come on. Come on to me. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Would you like to know why Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light? I mean, the yoke that he gives us. Why is it so easy? Why is it so light? Because the new covenant is not performance driven. If it's performance driven, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be light. It's not performance based. It's not performance driven. Let me ask you another question. Do you still need more convincing that the yoke that he was talking about is the law. Come on, now you say, Mark, maybe you pulled that out of context somewhere. You just made the yoke the law when he, that's not even what he was talking about. You, you want some more convincing? I'm going to show you that the yoke is the law. The law is the yoke. In Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, we find these words. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. I want you to underscore the word in your mind, brethren. He's teaching the brothers. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brothers. The brothers what? The brothers in Christ. The Judaizers came down. And you know what they came with? They came with a mixture of covenants and taught the brethren the very same converts that the Apostle Paul shared the gospel of grace with, the gospel that required zero additives, zero antibiotics, zero pesticides, zero preservatives, but rather made us beneficiaries of his loving kindness. So these Judaizers, they come down, and they come down to teach the brethren, the people in Christ. And look at their message right here. It says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a powerful scripture right there. Now, see, a believer could open that up and not understand context here and go, wow, I'm in trouble here. I'm in trouble. But do you see what they're doing here? They're saying, we're glad you're saved. We're glad you found this new faith. We're glad you found Jesus. We're glad you found this new grace. But you still got to be circumcised. Is that what they're saying there? He says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now again, who is saying this? Not Luke the writer here, but the Judaizers are coming with this message right here. When I look at that scripture, the first thing I do is go, okay. Well, if you got 50% men and 50% women, women don't get circumcised, so what do you do for them? What do they got to do? Come on. Then you say, what, what about the kids? And what, what ages? And what ages do, you have, do they have to do something? See, this is what they're doing. They're mixing the old covenant with the new covenant. And they're literally saying, you cannot even be saved unless you physically do something. Next scriptures. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension. Very important there. No small dissension. Dissension means disagreement, friends. It means rebellion, essentially. It means a melee of your emotions. And so when Paul and Barnabas heard what they were teaching them, these Judaizers, and they had already poured their blood, sweat, and tears into these guys. They would already established that it's Christ alone. No additives, no preservatives. They've already laid that foundation. And now you came in and tried to mess it up. 
My little granddaughter was at our house yesterday and she took a deck of playing cards and she put them all in order. So all the suits, all the numbers ascending right up into the aces. And I said, let me show you, let me see those cards. I'm going to show you a card trick. She was so afraid that I would get those cards out of order. She just kept looking at me like, no, Bumpa, don't get them out of order. And I can only imagine Paul's heart, Barnabas's heart. They're saying, you are trying to get the guys out of order again here. You're injecting something into them. They were so protective of the gospel. It said there was no small dissension. I mean, there was chaos. If there was ever a time for Paul to throw a punch, this would have been it right here. No small dissension and dispute with them. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles. That's Peter. That's James. That's Matthew, all these guys. Go see the apostles in Jerusalem and the elders too about this question. What is the question? The question about whether or not the men had to be circumcised to be saved. They said, you go. You guys, we're not going to just take your word for it. There's only a couple of you guys, but I want you to go to the 12. I want you to go to the elders of the church. Maybe we got a better chance of winning this argument. So let me ask a question here. It's a question I had to ask in context of the scripture. Who determined, was it the Judaizers or the Galatians that Paul and Barnabas should go to Jerusalem and visit the apostles and the elders about this question? It was the Galatians, friends. The Judaizers weren't necessarily even present at the time. It was the Galatians. Now, why? Why would they want you to see the apostles and the elders' words? Because the Judaizers' command to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses was the only doctrine that they had been familiar with for hundreds of years. I'm familiar with this one. My daddy told me about it. My granddaddy told me about it. And now they're coming in and telling this. So I'm very familiar with this doctrine. Friends, you've got to let go of some things, I'm telling you. They were very familiar with the doctrine that they had been inoculated with for hundreds of years. Friends, the gospel of grace leaves us as beneficiaries of his loving kindness, and it does not require circumcision or any one of the 613 Jewish laws. None of them. Circumcision was one of the 613, and it doesn't require that one. It doesn't require any of them. To add anything to Jesus' finished work on the cross for our salvation is to add our own scaffolding, our own bug juice, our own performance, our own seed in the belly of a Hagar, our own growth hormones, and our own flesh. Friends, we are not justified by the law. We are justified by grace through faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law for anybody who has been baptized into Christ. Anybody that's been circumcised by Christ is set free from the law. We are clothed with Christ. We are dead to the law. Christ is the end of the law. Now I want you to see this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Look at these words. Look at these words, friends. This is what the Apostle Paul would write to the Colossians. Now see, it would have been wonderful if he could have just whipped out this letter and just said, read Colossians. Because I had to deal with it over there, but these hadn't even been written yet. He is blazing the trail. He's on evangelistical journeys at this point in time. And he says here, 
in him. Who's him? Christ, come on. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, it's not like Moses' circumcision. That was human hands. He said, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision that is not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off. I love that. When you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Next scriptures. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. The apostle Paul is saying, I've seen it time and time again. This is how it works. When you were dead, when you were dead, he says, in your sins, when your flesh had not been circumcised yet, God made you alive with Christ. How did he do it? A cut cold knife from heaven? No. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. That's beautiful. Back to Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension to dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about that question. All right, we're going to give you your fair shake. We're not going to lord it over you. We're going to do as you've asked us to do. We're going to go to the 12. We're going to go to the elders. So being sent on their way by the church. Notice that? You probably overlooked that before. They were sent by the church. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversions of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. So as they're journeying toward Jerusalem, they're meeting other believers along the journey And they don't allow that nonsense from the Judaizers to be a stumbling block. They're pouring out what they have seen that's positive, what they have seen God do, how God has poured out his blessing upon the Gentiles. And they're saying, look what he's done. And you know what it did? It caused great joy to come to their hearts. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders And they reported all things that God had done with them. Look at this now, friends. It says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed. Very important there. Because what you've got is you've got Pharisees who have believed now. They have believed in the way. They have believed in Christ. But they've chosen to remain Pharisees for whatever reasons. Religious. But he said there, he says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up. See, they still got mixture in them, friends. Saying, here's what they said now. It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So now 
it's went from bad to worse, hasn't it? We were on our way with one of the commandments to get circumcised. Now you just said you got to do all 613 of them. You got to keep the whole law. The Pharisees that Luke wrote about, again, were also new converts. And because of a lifetime of programming under the law, they were not just hesitant, but they were unwilling to let go of the law. Why? Because they had spent a lifetime. People don't like to change. When they get set in their ways, they don't want to change. They believed, these Pharisees, new converts, they believed that in keeping the law, that it served as a pesticide on their sins. They held on to the law tooth and nail, overlooking the truth that grace through faith had already been made available to them and they had become beneficiaries of his loving kindness. Next scriptures. It says, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, I love this. Peter's always got the big mouth, doesn't he? Yeah. It says, Peter rose up and said to them, he said, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Come on. Purifying their hearts their core, their inner being, the holy of holies, purifying their hearts. By what? By those 613 Jewish laws? No! Because they got in the line for circumcision? No! Come on! It was by faith. They were purified by faith. Something as simple as just saying, I believe. Something as simple as saying, thank you. That's believing, friends. They were purified by faith. No additives, no antibiotics, no preservatives, no pesticides, no growth hormones. Beneficiaries of his loving kindness by grace through faith alone. Next scriptures. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. I told you it was going to be in these scriptures right here. What is the context here? The context is part of the law. You know, obeying Moses' law, getting circumcised, this is the context. And right here he says, why are you trying to put a yoke back on the people's neck? The only thing they've been talking about is the law. He said, our fathers were not able to bear it. We're not able to bear it. But we believe that through the grace, come on, man. He says, but we believe through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Come on, by what? By grace through faith. Saved the same way. Poured out his Holy Spirit. Back to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. Look at that scripture again. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now, let me highlight two words in that scripture right there. They're the words entangled again. 
I just want to highlight them in your mind for a second. And let's go on a short English lesson, okay? Come on. The word entangled is a verb, and it translates as ensnared, kind of like a fish in a net or a fly in a spider web. You've got ensnared. And he says, don't get ensnared. Don't find yourself in a trap that you can't seem to find your way out of. Christ is the way. Now, the word again is simply an adverb. Adverbs are used to modify verbs. That's their function. In plain English, adverbs tell us things like how and when and where and why and under what conditions and to what extent. That's what an adverb does. Therefore, when the Apostle Paul told the Galatians that they could be entangled again, he was essentially saying, let me tell you how. Let me tell you when. Let me tell you where. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you under what conditions. And let me tell you to what degree it happens. It all has one source. It happens by holding on to the law. Friends, we must tear down our scaffolding that insists that we climb our way to holiness, that we climb our way to righteousness. Tear it down! Throw it in the fire. Isn't that what King Esau did when he became king of Israel? He saw that they were worshiping Asherah poles and all kinds of God. And on his first day in office, he says, tear it all down! There's one God! Throw it in the fire and burn it up. He had to take one away from his own grandmother, Macaw. In fact, he had to take her out of the family business. He deposed her, the scriptures say. Why? Because they're worshiping a God with no life. Tear down that scaffolding. Friends, the yoke of bondage will not, listen to me, will not undo your salvation. I don't want you to go out of here today and go, come on now, Mark. Man, now you made me feel worse. No, you ought to feel better because nothing undoes your salvation. So the yoke of bondage does not undo our salvation, but it will cause us to live annoyed and frustrated lives. I want you to see a picture of an elk. This was taken from a trail cam. That's a camera someone sets up out in the woods and they just watch for animals to come by. And when I saw this picture quite some time ago, it was brought back to my memory as I was thinking about this yoke of bondage and whatnot. Now, this elk was probably just curious one day. Maybe he was reaching through an old tire that someone had discarded for some food, some leaves or whatever it may be. And he got his head through it and couldn't even get it back out through it. But he slipped his head through the tire, never realizing that it would become a yoke of bondage. The wildlife authorities estimated that that elk had been wearing that tire for more than half of its adult life. Now, let me ask you a question. Did the elk cease to be an elk while wearing a yoke around his neck? I mean, if it would have been elk season, you would have shot that elk. There's no way they could have said, I'm sorry, that's not an elk. Well, then what is it? Uh, I, I don't know, but that's not enough. No, that's an elk, friends. He doesn't cease to be an elk because he's got a yoke around his neck. Of course he doesn't. And the yoke of the law worn around a believer's neck does not change their position in Christ one iota. It just rubs you the wrong way. Come on. Just has a way of gnawing at you, right? It puts a heavy burden on you. 
Friends, the law was not made for the new covenant believer any more than an automobile tire was made for an elk. It's not fitting for the believer. It's an annoyance and frustration. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, now we find these words. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. What does that mean? That means if you think you've done something to earn his salvation, to earn his favor, to earn his loving kindness, if there's anything you've done to position yourself to make him love you more, then guess what that will lead to? Doing something else. And then doing something else. Because every time I do something, he's pleased with me. It's an annoyed life. It's a frustrated life. He says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor. Look at those words, to keep the whole law. In other words, you've said, listen, I've got a plan of salvation. I know Jesus died on the cross for me, but I believe I need to get circumcised too. He said, then what you've done is you've put yourself back under the law and you've got to keep the whole law now. It's all or nothing with the law, friends. You can't just pick pieces here and there, part and parcel. No, it's all or nothing with the law. In other words, the Apostle Paul was saying this. If a man adds anything at all, including something as benign as circumcision to grace the undiluted gospel, in an effort to make himself more righteous, then that man has fallen from grace. Don't get concerned. That doesn't mean that man has lost his salvation. He's just fallen from the awareness of grace. That's all. He has slipped a tire around his neck and he will continue to carry a heavy burden until he comes to the realization that circumcision only has value if you keep the whole law. If you break any of the law, you will have become as though you had not been circumcised. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. Next scriptures. He says, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. How many of you have been scared of those scriptures at one time? Come on, be honest. I was at one time. He says, when you attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Because I always heard that preach is you've lost your salvation. That is impossible. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Next scriptures. Look at these. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. You don't get any points whether you do it or you don't do it. He said in Christ, it avails nothing either way. Why? Because it's a heart issue we're talking about here. It's above the waist, not below the waist. Come on. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. 
And then he says, you ran well. In other words, you were running a good race, some of the versions say. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You say, Pastor Mark, you refer to grace, the undiluted gospel. That's what you call it, right? Is that right? Yes. Well, then, if there is an undiluted gospel, then by reason and simple deduction, there must be a diluted gospel as well, right? Uh, yes, unfortunately, the answer is yes again. You say, how in the world? How do you dilute the gospel? And why would anyone want to do that? <laughs> Those are two great questions. And they've been being asked for many years. The Apostle Paul asked the same questions. It's because the church has overlooked the magnitude of the gift that is found in Romans chapter 5. I want you to see these words. Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. These will be very familiar scriptures coming from this church. The Apostle Paul would write, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. In other words, when my life was chaotic, when my life was a riot on the inside of my emotions because of my sin, it was so great. He's saying here, he says, the gift, the gift that God gave me, the gift of his dear son, the gift of salvation, the gift followed many trespasses, many sins. It followed many trespasses. And what did it do? It brought justification. It came to announce you've been made perfect in him. You've been declared righteous in him. You are holy in him. For if by the trespass of the one man, who's that one man? Come on, Adam. Yeah. For by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. He put a tire around the elk's neck. He put a tire around my neck. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those, come on, who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man? Come on, Jesus Christ. Beautiful. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. That means, come on, it means Adam sinned. And I don't care if he grabbed a bar of lava soap and a brittle pad, there was no way to scrub sin off of him, friends. He could have stood under a hot shower for eternity and never lost that sin. There was no way for him to undo that. He couldn't undo what he had done. He couldn't build enough scaffolding, friends. So in that scripture, it's telling us, if that's what happened with Adam, then how much more with Christ? 
That means your shenanigans, your stuff never undoes what his blood did for us. You can't undo it. You can't. I get passionate about this, friend, because it's so easy. Can you imagine taking a little kid on an Easter egg hunt and an Easter egg is laying right there one foot in front of them and they're just standing around going, I don't see no Easter eggs. Well, look down. I still don't see no Easter eggs. Get a little closer. I still don't see no Easter eggs. Come on. He's laid it out there in the scripture so plain for us that we could see it like an Easter egg on the ground right in front of us. Yet we've walked around it because our paradigm has been, you got to be circumcised. You got to obey the 613 laws. And because that has been our reality, that has been our programming, we just can't seem to shake it when it's laying there right on the ground, right in front of us. That's what he's saying there. Consequently, just as one trespass, who's that one trespasser? Adam resulted in condemnation for all people. He's saying Adam only did one thing wrong. So also one Righteous act resulted in justification for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. I don't know how you can read Romans chapter 5 and not get set free, friends. It's so plain. By one act of righteousness, by Christ, it says there, that the many will be made righteous. That means it's a finished work. I'm not in the oven baking anymore, friends. I've been made. The cake is out of the oven, friends. We've been made the righteousness of God in him. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Now that is a stumbling block because we don't understand that for the most part. We go, wait a minute. Mark, you've just been kind of preaching against the law. The law is perfect, friends. The law is good, holy, righteous, perfect, all that stuff. It is to bring people that are obstinate to Christ, the lost to Christ. But then it has no further function in our lives in terms of making ourselves or keeping ourselves right. So what does it mean here? It says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Well, what it's talking about is so that the awareness that you've committed a sin might increase. Because until you understand that you're under the condemnation of the law, you're just going to go through life thinking everything is hunky-dory, everything is just fine. I'm better than my neighbor. You know, I'm fine. So he brought the law in to point fingers at us and say, thou shall not steal, thou shall not commit adultery, thou shall not lie. That's what it was for. So the law was brought in, friends, so that the increase would be in the unbeliever's awareness. We don't operate by the law. We operate by the Holy Spirit as believers. But where sin increased, look at these words. I love these words. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Come on. (laughs) That's good news, isn't it? Where sin increased, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends. When the law was brought in, see, Adam, Abraham, Isaac, those guys weren't under the Mosaic law. They lived before the law. And so when the law was brought in, guess what? It didn't stop people from sinning. In fact, it didn't even slow people down from sinning. The world became very wicked. It increased sinning. The law itself became the bony finger of condemnation in the hearts of the lawbreakers. That's what it was. The existence of 
of God's commandments criminalized and convicted the world of their sin while simultaneously showing the offenders their need for God. I'm a failure. I can't do it. I need God. That's Romans chapter 5. That's the essence of it. My closing scriptures come from Romans chapter 6 now. The very next scriptures, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, and we'll close here. The Apostle Paul said, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I've heard this before. He says, By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Friends, I feel bad that the Apostle Paul had to ask these four questions. He just like comes out of the gate in chapter 6, boom, 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 four questions. The reason is that he just got through telling the Roman believers that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. He's saying, look, I know what I just told you, but don't use your liberties to do all that nonsense. This is the scripture that law-centered believers use to give finished work ministries a bad rap. They pull this one out right here. They say things like, you're telling your people that it's okay to sin. Oh, really? Well, I challenge any one of you to go back from the inception of this ministry, eight years, and you listen to every single message that's out there, and you show me one time where Valerie or myself stood in this pulpit and said, it's okay to sin. Just do whatever you feel like. No, no, you'll never find that here, friends. You won't. It's not there. We don't condone sin. We don't make light of sin. We don't just say your sin doesn't matter. Sin will kill you. Sin won't undo your salvation, but it will undo your marriage. Sin won't undo your salvation, but it will undo your employment. Sin won't undo your salvation, but it will undo the relationship you have with your kids. Sin won't undo your salvation, but it will undo your driving privileges. Sin won't undo your salvation, but it will undo your voting privileges. Sin will kill you, friends. In fact, we tell you that it's grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That is our message. How many of you know that it's pothole season in Wisconsin? I was navigating around them this morning as I was coming here. And every time I see a pothole, I realize that my automobile is bigger than any pothole that I've ever encountered. But that doesn't mean that I intentionally drive my car through potholes. I navigate around them. And my God is bigger than any pothole I can create in my life. But that doesn't mean that I exercise my Christian liberty to drag my father into sinful situations just to prove that his grace is greater than my sin. When the Holy Spirit dropped those words in my heart a few weeks ago, I said, wow, I get you, Daddy. Next scriptures. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Next scriptures. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Come on. You've been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot. It's not that he just will not. He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, come on, in the exact same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, not your spirit. He's not allowed there. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Can't you see this? It's out of gratitude. Offer it out of gratitude. I'm an instrument of righteousness. And that instrument never gets out of tune. It never needs tuning at all. No, I'm an instrument of righteousness. Oh, he sounds so beautiful before you, Father. Keep that in your mind as you're living this righteousness life. Last scripture. For sin, come on, shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. The Judaizers offered their converts a diluted gospel, a gospel that mandated circumcision and the keeping of Moses' law, a gospel that required inoculations of the old covenant and annual booster shots of forgiveness, a gospel that taught its converts how to build their own scaffolding. It's scaffolding 101 day. A gospel that slipped a tire around the necks of their converts. There was one thing, just one thing that the Judaizers were good at. There was one thing that their gospel did for sure. It put their converts in the pest control business. You see that? Jesus' gospel is grace, the undiluted gospel. His grace is a one-time transfusion by one sacrifice. He has made perfect forever those who are made holy. Jesus' gospel does not require daily or monthly or annual booster shots. The gospel of grace has no need of additives and antibiotics, and preservatives, and pesticides, and growth hormones. The gospel of grace does not come with scaffolding. We cannot climb there any other way. But it comes through grace alone. And we become the beneficiaries of His loving 
kindness. That gospel of grace does not come with mixture of covenants or contaminated menus. Friends, friends, the Apostle Paul instructed believers to stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So let me ask you a question. Let me ask it one more time. How do we stand fast? How is it that we stand fast in our God-given liberties? Can you make that plain with me one more time, Pastor Mark? Sure. Well, it begins by remembering that we're children of promise. I think that's where it starts. We're children of promise. You see, that's how grace works. Through a promise. We're children of promise. It works through the promises of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. As New Covenant believers, we are not in the pest control business. We are in the rest control business. Let me ask you another question. What is it that keeps interfering with our rest? That's a good question, isn't it? What is it? Come on, tell me. Make it plain, Mark. What is it that keeps interfering with my rest? I'll tell you what it is. It's the bondwoman and her son. It's an old covenant mindset. It's the old covenant practices. It's the flesh rather than faith. It's grind in place of grace. Let me ask you another question. What did God do with Hagar and Ishmael? He sent them out into the wilderness so that they could never live under the tent of Abraham and Sarah the father of faith and the mother of grace. Friends, the law is the yoke of bondage. Believers are not justified by the law. We are justified by grace through faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. For all who were baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. We are dead to the law. So let me ask you one more time. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Have you had it with those annoying pests? You know, the ones that seek to consume our sanity. Have the locust and the canker worm and the palmer worm and the caterpillar been devouring your green pasture? You know, the pasture that you lie down in to find peace and tranquility? Then I've got a word for you. Come to Christ. He is the end of the law. Friends, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We are no longer under the law, but under grace. Under grace, we discover a master that loves us. We discover a master that took us into death, burial, and then resurrection life. Under grace, we discover that his grace is greater than our sin. Under grace, we discover that we truly are the beneficiaries of his loving kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of grace undiluted father and father we thank you as these teachings will begin to prepare our hearts to help us see it's those little bitty foxes that we don't recognize and that we don't pay attention to it's something small but tries to come along and put us back under hagar's tent 
under Ishmael's tent. And Father, help us to have the wisdom and help us to be established so well when they come knocking on our doors. We can just tell them, look, I'm in the rest control business. Father, I thank you so much. He said, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? He said, get away with me and I'll show you how to take a real rest. Work with me. Walk with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the, the, the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy on you. I won't put a yoke on you. But I'll be glad to take it off of you. How will I do that? By showering you with my grace. In Jesus' name, amen.